somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we place every movie up against the Jaws scale to see where it lands. I'm Paul Spataro, and today I am joined by two of the aficionados from the vault of startling something something. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Monster horror tales of terror. There you go. Chris Honeywell. Why you do this to me, Demi? Uh, You know that? We'll get to that in a minute. And Chris Tyler. (laughs) Wonderful night for a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> that line, that why you do this to me, Damie, why? Why, Damie, why? When I first saw this movie, and I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I was about 15 years old when I first saw this movie, and that line haunted me. I could just hear it over and over again, and I was like, freaked out. We are here today to review the 1973 classic, The Exorcist. And I guess the best way to start off is... Why don't we all give our histories of when we saw it and what we thought of it initially, and then we'll start getting into some finer details on it. Uh, why don't we start with uh, the youngest of our group, Mr. Tyler? All right. So, uh, yeah, I'm a huge horror fan, and um, The Exorcist was one of those movies that, growing even growing up, um, being born in 79, it was still one of those ones that was... That was the one that, oh my god, The Exorcist, it's one of the scariest movies ever. And and, and it, we'll talk about its impact later on, I'm sure. Um, it was one that just had escaped my viewing until I was in college, believe it or not. Um, the first time I actually saw it was when they did the, um, the theatrical re-release. Um, so that must have been, what, the 25th anniversary? I think 98, the version you've never seen when that one came out. Oh, the one with um, the spider walk. Yes, they put in a lot of the uh, the excised footage, and they did do a couple of other small uh, things that was, to it. That was right around 2000, I think. Is it about 2000? Okay, because I, yeah, I know... Nine, maybe 98, somewhere. No, I, I'm thinking around 2000, actually. All right, yeah, because I was, I was definitely in college, and um, I went with a bunch of people that had never seen it either. Um, so that was, uh, that was great fun. Um, so, because I, I have a stronger disposition for this kind of stuff than a lot of people do not not that that being said it did still uh terrify me we'll definitely get into that but um yeah so it just was one of those ones that had escaped my 
my viewing for quite a while, but um, it has stuck with me ever since. Okay. How about how about you, Chris? The other Chris. In fact, just to make this easier, from now on, I'm going to just just going to be Chris and Hero. Yay! So that there's no confusion. No confusion. Uh, or, this, or, this or, or no, no more than the normal. <laughs> <laughs> This one was one, I mean, it's legend. When it first came out, I was five years old. And um, my dad would let, would have let me watch anything if he had his druthers. But my mom would have had me watch nothing, you know, if she had her druthers. So there was no way at five years old I was going to see The Exorcist. Or hadn't. But I'd heard about it. Like, we had, I had an Aunt Jennifer who's not religious at all and was actually kind of the party girl of of my aunts and she had two kids and when she went and you know this this is the stuff i'm hearing before i actually see the movie is she had two kids and she went to see the movie and it freaked her out so much she made them wear crosses around their neck so they wouldn't get possessed <laughs> for like months afterwards and then i would see scenes from it on tv and read about it and you would hear reviewers and people saying like you know, this movie might be a little too intense for, like, most people, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, in my mind, it was hyped, hyped, hyped up. And uh, when it finally came on, like, regular TV, there was a weird thing back in the broadcast days. And some channels took advantage of it. And uh, you two might have actually seen more of it being around larger urban areas. Because they, they would often take take advantage of it more. But local local TV stations would after midnight. It was called Safe Harbor Hours, and sort of short of showing like you know softcore porn or porn, you could show an R-rated movie or something if it was after midnight without getting in trouble with the FCC. And uh, so they showed it like at eight o'clock at night, but it was a cut for TV version, and my parents wouldn't let me watch it. But I was I was already scheming. I knew. That they were, they'd been advertising that they were going to show the uncut version after mid at midnight. You know, twelve oh one. You know, The Exorcist uncut and 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 with you know minimal commercial interruptions. So, I I rigged up in my room in my closet. I, I hung blankets along the door of my closet to mute the sound, and sn- and snuck my TV in there like a week earlier. So it was just established that that was where my TV was hanging out, like I wasn't using it. And then, like, went to bed that night and just, like, lay awake till midnight and crept into my closet and watched The Exorcist and was even more intense, actually, <laughs> than it was in my, in my imagination. Um, How old were you at this point? I had to have been, like, eight... Eight or nine, probably, Some, something like that. But I already knew, like I already knew about all the R-rated movies that I planned on watching. You know, someday, whenever I got the chance, somehow. This was really before VCRs or HBO. But you know, I would go to the library and I could read the like horror books, adult horror books about horror there, be, uh, with, without having to have like my mother over my shoulder. So I knew about all these movies. I was waiting to see a clockwork orange but you know who knows how i was gonna ever see it but um you know hopefully it would come on tv sometime 
but yeah, I was, I, and then there I was at two o'clock in the morning, scared out of my wits and, you know, nothing, it was a secret. So I was like, I just had to crawl back into bed. I remember actually years before that, hearing the stories and seeing the scene of Linda, uh, seeing of Linda Blair getting totally freaked out because I could hear my sister down the hall. She had like a chest cold and she was like sleeping in a room and like <laughs> breathing. I was like, oh no, my sister's Stop, stop you scaring me. But at now, nowadays, I may have been right. That may have been when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> now, I remember when this was in the movies. This was out in 1973, so I would have been 10. And I remember my mom and dad and my aunt and uncle going to the movies to see it. I was home at the time. They, they, weren't, they weren't quite ready. Although my parents were fairly liberal as far as what movies they'd let me see, they weren't going to let me see this one. And I remember listening to them talk about it after they got home. And the stories that were going around, and I don't, I, I assume they're apocryphal and that they're not reality, but the stories that were going around were that there were actual cases of women or a woman who had a miscarriage in the theater watching this movie because she was so terrified. I remember hearing that story. Wow. And I remember, like, that stayed with me. I just thought, oh my God, that must be so, like, terrifying, this movie. Then, uh,. I said I was 15 earlier, but I guess I was either 16 or 17 because my senior year in high school, which was 1980 or 1979, I graduated in 80, uh, it was re-released to the theaters, and I ended up going to see it with some friends. And by way of background, at the time, there had been a small fire in my house a couple of weeks earlier, and I wasn't able to sleep in my bedroom because of some of the smoke damage that was done in there and it was being repaired so i was actually sleeping in the living room on the couch for a couple of weeks while that was being done and i remember coming home from the movies and i was absolutely besides myself with fear (laughs) and i sat on the couch and i left the light on and i didn't sleep a wink that entire (laughs) night until whatever time my mom got up and came down to have a cup of coffee which was probably seven o'clock in the morning, and then I was able Jeez. to roll over and go to sleep for a little while because someone else was downstairs with me. <laughs> I was terrified. This movie just literally just scared me senseless. And then, just to take the story a step further, uh, one of one of my nieces who's into horror movies saw this, you know, years later when she was old enough to see it. And I remember her saying, yeah, I thought it was funny. I was laughing when I saw it. And I was yes. like, are you crazy? I don't understand that either. I, and I was hoping that would get brought up. I don't know when this one turned into a parody of itself by no reason other than people thinking it's it's silly. I just, I don't get that. I, I think, I, well, I think the difference between, I mean, when it came out, there was nothing like it. And even the idea of, like, demonic possession was sort of, you know something that was on the fringes of like people who read weird you know ufo books and stuff like that so it wasn't a a generally even like people who are catholic it wasn't a a a big and the way it was handled it was you know and and this makes me want to not like this movie because just out of principle because i hate it when uh, the the th- the fact of the matter is, it's a inc- as if it wasn't a horror movie, it's just an incredibly made movie. So then it, it was, you know, it got Academy Award nominations and is was acknowledged, and it's just like, 
it, it pisses me off because it's just like you know why does why does it have to be this horror mo- why can't we acknowledge horror movies like this but you know it is such a it almost perfect movie and but but if you watch it now there's been so many copies of it parodies of it uh, stuff that's grosser than than it um, it just doesn't have the same but the the power. tone. The tone, though, is 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 the issue. I think some people who have like here here's the thing. Like I couldn't imagine if I was like a devout Catholic and went to see this movie, how terif how how terrifying that would be. But like, even as a as a kid, I knew you know Godzilla isn't real, or you know the the monster on the screen isn't real. But I I could go into that you know suspension suspension of disbelief mode in the movies. Where I would get, you know, I would get scared shitless by something that I didn't, I knew wasn't real. But with, with this, you know, at, at that point, you know, like religion or, you know, going to church and Catholicism, it was something that, you know, pe- I just, you know, that's something that people did. And I didn't really think of it as like, oh, it's true or not true or anything. It was just part of whatever general life. But when you saw it in this context of a movie which took it very seriously and almost like documentary style, very dry in the beginning to establish the reality of it, you weren't dealing with, you know, mad Dr. Frankenstein or a UFO full of aliens. You were dealing with, you know, there's a you know, there's a Catholic church right down the street from us, you know. And and so it's based in reality. And then there was, you know, William Peter Blatty based this on a real you know, thing that happened in the forties and, and all that. So it had this extra patina of reality to it. Like, you know, the, the, the movie was at that time was almost saying to people, look at this, this could happen. Well, and and they believed it, you know? Well, it's, it's also just the fact that it's, it's, it's something being, it's something happening to a child. It's the, that corruption of innocence. Yeah. And, and she's, I mean, she's not even a teenager. I mean, she is a child. Um, and it's, and it's done so gradually and it's small things where, okay, it doesn't seem like a demonic possession. It seems like this is it, rightly. So they think of it, it. Is there something neurologically wrong with this child? Right. And they go about it as any, rational human being would let's go and have her tested because uh, the you know clearly there's got to be something wrong with her brain there's something not not firing right there um, and it's so by the time you get to those grand guignol moments and those over-the-top moments it does you have that punch and and you feel it more because you've seen those small things leading up where it is just something off kilter first to me the 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 most you know the head spinning is you know it's it's a great effect and the spit in the pea soup and the bed levitating is is great stuff and her cussing like a sailor to you know be as vulgar as possible is great the scene that still sticks with me to this day is when her mother's having the dinner party oh yeah and she just walks in and, oh, you know, oh, Reagan's downstairs and, oh, it seems like we have a guest. And she turns and looks at the astronaut and says, you're going to die up there and just pisses on the floor. That to me is like the is so terrifying 
because who would no child is going to say that for no reason that, like, that that's a demon thinking <sighs> how can i ruin this dinner party perfectly how can I, what can i say that will just kill everything in this and and then and then and she does it while just like staring blankly ahead in that creepy manner yeah it's that's the one where i that's where i felt my blood run cold watching it right. the first time and, and i still do the voice isn't there it's the de- but it's the demon playing a child you know the demon's using her voice to just you're gonna die up there and yeah it, <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> now i think the just to, to kind of bring us back a little bit to where we started i think the viewing of this as comical is attributable to one of two things in my mind either the fact that a lot of the things that were done in this movie had been repeated albeit not as well uh in other movies to the point where it numbed people to that and it made it seem less serious or the fact that it had been spoofed enough times for people to not take it seriously yeah and a lot of thinking it's one of those two a lot of the spoofs are really on the nose plus there's there's certain people that just don't and and in in modern day culture, we're so swamped in culture and movies and stuff. You know, it's not going to see a movie is just watching another thing. People are constantly watching something, so it doesn't seem as easy now to get people just sucked into something. You know. Yeah, and, I should probably and, take a minute to give the synopsis on this film. Oh, geez, yes. <clears throat> so the plot of this film, according to Wikipedia, is. In 1973, Lancaster Merrin is a veteran Catholic priest and exorcist who is shown to be on an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Hatra in Iraq. There he finds an amulet that resembles the statue of Pazuzu, a demon of ancient origins whose history Merrin is familiar. In modern-day Georgetown, actress Chris McNeil is living on location with her 12-year-old daughter Regan where Chris has just wrapped up the final scene of a film about student activism directed by her friend and associate, Burke Dennings. After playing with a Ouija board and contacting a supposedly imaginary friend she calls Captain Howdy, Reagan begins acting strangely, including making mysterious noises, stealing, constantly using obscene language, and exhibiting abnormal strength. Chris hosts a party only for Reagan to come downstairs unannounced, telling one of the guests who is an astronaut, you're going to die up there, and then urinating on the floor. Later, Regan's bed begins to shake violently, adding further to her mother's horror. Chris consults a number of physicians, but Dr. Klein and his associates find nothing physiologically wrong with her daughter, despite Regan undergoing a battery of diagnostic tests. One night when Chris is out, Burke Dennings is babysitting Regan, only for Chris to come home to hear he has died, falling out the window. Although this is assumed to have been an accident, given Burke's history of heavy drinking, his death is investigated by Lieutenant William Kinderman, who interviews Chris, as well as a priest and psychiatrist, Father Damien Karras, who has recently been emotionally shaken after the death of his frail mother. The doctors, thinking that Reagan's aberrations are mostly psychiatric in origin, recommend an exorcism to be performed. Chris arranges a meeting with Karras. After recording Reagan speaking backwards, and witnessing the apparent effect of a sacrifice of her flesh with the words help me on her stomach, Karis is convinced Reagan is possessed. 
Believing her soul is in danger, he decides to perform an exorcism. The experienced Merrin is selected for performing the actual exorcism with Karis present to assist. Both priests witness Reagan perform a series of bizarre, vulgar acts and confine her to her bedroom. They attempt to exorcise the demon, but a stubborn Pazuzu toys with them, especially Karis. Karis shows weakness and is dismissed by Merrin, who attempts the exorcism alone. Karis enters the room and discovers Merrin has died of a heart attack. After failing to revive Merrin, the enraged Karis confronts the mocking, laughing spirit of Pazuzu, tackling the demon to the ground. At Karis's furious demand, Pazuzu then possesses Karis, leaving Reagan's body. In a moment of self-sacrifice, the priest throws himself out the window before allowing Pazuzu to compel him to harm Reagan, and is himself mortally injured. Father Dyer, an old friend of Karis, happens upon the scene and administers the last rites to his friend. A few days later, Reagan, who is now back to her normal self, prepares to leave for Los Angeles with her mother. Although Reagan has no apparent recollection of the possession, she gives Fire Father Dyer a kiss on the cheek. Kinderman, who narrowly misses their departure, befriends Father Dyer as he investigates Karis's death. At that point, we cue tubular bells and I get goosebumps and, and don't sleep for a couple of days. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was actually just, in uh, a car that got totaled when we were listening to tubular bells. It's it's second to me in horror movie uh, themes, only to Halloween. Ooh, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it has to be up there because of uh, it, and it's so not what you think of when you think of a horror theme usually, and I think that's why it's so great. Well, it's it just is, eerie. Well, it also it's, has gotten copied a lot, you know. That I mean, when you think the position is most... now a ho- a horror trope. I mean, the phantasm music is very. Yeah, very much to like me, that. To me, the most evocative horror movie themes are this one, uh, Halloween, uh, Psycho. Jaws. Jaws. Well, Jaws, see, Jaws, I think, transcends horror. So I don't even think of it as a horror theme. Uh, and I'm just, I was thinking The Omen. Oh, yeah. Those those are the, the music. Like, the, the music from Jaws doesn't give me that inner fear or discomfort level. I just I find it almost uh, almost exciting to hear the music from Jaws. <laughs> but but the music from these movies actually like just makes me start looking over my shoulder. Yeah, it hits that it hits that uh, subconscious thing, and I can't remember what it what it you know the technical term for it is. But it does it does make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a great score. <laughs> I actually was thinking about it, and I'm thinking um, the Exorcist was Jaws before Jaws. It was the big, it was the huge, I mean, it wasn't, you know, this was more than a hit movie. This was a whole, like, cultural phenomena for a while. It was, like, the definition of, like, what you want to see if you want to see the scariest thing you're going to see, you know? Mm -hmm. Until Jaws came out and sort of became, you know, even even more more so of a blockbuster. You see, but but Jaws, to me, as I said, Jaws kind of transcends horror. Jaws is more than a horror movie. Jaws is a horror yeah. movie. It's an adventure film. Uh, horror action you know, adventure drama. Yeah, the, there's more to it than horror. This is to me a pure horror movie. But there's no lightness on... in this movie. No, there's no, no, no lightness no. in Jaws. There's only one moment that's like kind of a a chuckle, and it's like a chuckle of relief, and that's uh, Norats. Norats. When Carl like lights up the lighter, or, or he he comes in behind him when they're in the attic and startles him. 
And then they see it's, it's just old Carl and he tells him no I, I'm just thinking like there's, there's also uh, the scene with Kinderman where he asks for the autograph for his daughter. Oh, and yeah. To, and then he has to sheepishly say, well, it's really for me. I, I, you know, that's a, like a lighthearted moment. It's not an out-out comedy moment, but it's lighthearted in its own way, and it, it just kind of relieves some tension. Yeah, but, I don't even see. Movie, that's the thing. Like, you couldn't even it, if you did anything to to lighten this, it would it strip away a lot of the effectiveness yeah, no. of it. Yeah, no. This is like, I mean, Jaws, Jaws. When it gets serious, it can get serious. But it's just people getting chomped up. This one, your your everlasting soul is in danger. You know. And you also have the you know you don't just have the, the the possession part of it, but the fact that it's a possession of a twelve year old girl with her mother desperately trying to figure out what's going on in a world that doesn't believe of with in possession. There's just so many levels of that that really just kind of hit home. And I just think that's one of the wonderful things about it, because everybody wants to be dismissive of the idea that this is real. Even even the Catholic Church wants to be dismissive of it to, to a large extent. And the doctors, when they even get to the point of suggesting exorcism, they're not suggesting it because they think she's possessed. They're thinking of, uh, they're thinking of it from the perspective that she's got some sort of psychological problem and that the possession, the exorcism, might be like a placebo that would convince her that the demon was gone right and a, a lot of this i remember when well I, I when i was a kid i read the book too and the book's really good too the book sort of the book is it's similar to the godfather it's very readable but the movie sort of transcends the book even and uh and there was another book that went along with it that uh william peter blatty wrote that was sort of the making of the movie but it was more of the process of the conceptualization of the movie and like had a bunch of early scripts and stuff but he was talking about i remember like my favorite part of it was he was talking about how the catholic church approaches and you know he he actually went and did research and said you know what would you do if if this happened and how would you go about it and, and the catholic church was extremely like look the first thing we would do is say go to the doctor and if the doctor doesn't find anything it, it, like the 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 stuff that would they have to do to finally get an exorcism the the hurdles that you have to jump and and the catholic church was also saying you know and you know it might even when you get to the the exorcism it might be a case, it still might be a case of psych, something psychological that needs to just go through the, the, the ceremony of the possession to do it, or, you know, it might be a demon possession. You don't know until this or this or this happens. So they're very, very uh, strict and careful about, about doing it. And I'm sure they also don't wa didn't want to get the reputation as, you know, be doing weird, you know, supernatural um rituals and stuff like that but i don't know i think that i think um when the exorcist came out it was a great um help to the catholic church you know yeah. <laughs> it got a lot of seats in the pews you know after that and and a lot of publicity there was a lot of argument over whether the catholic church was going to condemn it or you know or applaud it for being realistic and it's funny because, you know, I don't really, not that, it's hard to say this the right way. I don't really think of such things as actually happening. 
And yet, I remember it, whatever I was, 16 years old or so, thinking, I'm never touching a Ouija board again. <laughs> so, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the cast in this one. Now, there, there was apparently a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people were talked about for the, the roles in this thing. Uh, Ellen Burstyn has the lead, but I know one of the people who is considered for it is kind of interesting because I think she's so similar that it would have been almost exactly the same movie, and that's uh, Shirley MacLaine. Yes. Hmm. But there was also, apparently, Jane Fonda, Audrey Hepburn, and Anne Bancroft were also possibly considered for it. Anne Bancroft, Jane Fonda would have been a little too young and pretty, you know. Not that that the other ones were young and pretty, but they they had that sort of matron, like, young matronly look, you know. What's her name? Um, who played Nurse Ratchet would have been probably been oh, yeah. Louise Fletcher. Louise yeah. Fletcher, yes. Um, she probably would have been great in the role. Uh, not that Ellen yeah. Burstyn wasn't great, but Ellen Burstyn was Burstyn. great. If 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 Shirley MacLaine did it, um, I I think I can almost see it being almost exactly the same portrayal, though. You know, you could almost see the same sort of reaction out of them. So. I heard they they asked Stanley Kubrick to direct it at one point. Yes. Ooh, that would have been. That would. It, I don't think it would have been as scary. I think it would have been a, a really great, interesting movie, but it wouldn't have been this the 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 same. I think like I think that that it was the perfect fit with directors. But we're talking about cat. I think it's. Every everybody ended up. I mean, it's iconic now, so of course they all look perfect. But I mean, <laughs> visually, everybody. I mean, Karis. I mean, he's just that perfect hangdog look. You can see, yeah. almost feel the like weight that he feels in his face as he's walking oh, yeah. around. You know, yeah. and uh... it's got that '70s bleak. You know, his home life and. You know, his, and his mom, and on the subway, and just, bleh, New York, or not New York, it's D.C., but it's just like urban hellscape. Well, apparently for the role of Father Karras, they were also considering Jack Nicholson, and then they had uh, actually signed Stacy Keach for the role. Oh, that man. could work, too, yeah. Nicholson's I don't know. too well-known. Well, Nicholson's too Nicholson, you know. Well, apparently Paul Newman wanted the part. That yeah. he's too, too. I think he he was too. Paul was too good looking to play the part. Well, yeah, and 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 I, I you know, when you do a movie like this, you kind of don't want people thinking that's Jack Nicholson. You want him to. Yeah, well, that out. was one of the things that was written in the notes as I was reading about this was that uh, they they really didn't want faces that people were going to recognize. And uh, Jason Miller, uh, who was great in this, I, I think his yes. performance is is absolutely like just note for note perfect. Uh, you know, his his claim to fame was that he wrote the play that championship season, and uh, he you know he had acted in that and he had directed that and you know so he was really more known as a playwright than as an actor at that point. Now he was nominated for best supporting actor, and I think rightfully so. I don't know what won that particular year, so I can't say if he was robbed, uh, but he was nominated, and he, I have like I said, no doubt in my mind that he deserved it. He he had a like a. A smoother Sylvester Stallone feel about him, to me, <laughs> and they even comment that he, he, you know, he looks like a boxer. Yeah, yeah, movie. like a more busted up like 
Sylvester Stallone. But I mean, it would be p- totally plausible that a young priest would have had, you know, growing up in a poor neighborhood would have been like a boxer when he was young. Hmm. Yeah, he's not a. Uh... You know, it's his where where he went to the seminary was probably different than where Lancaster. Well, yeah, went he to looks like what I'm saying is he looks like he grew up poor and you know and probably had to be tough. You know, growing up, he's got that that tough but resigned sort of thing. You know, like before he was a priest, he probably could have you know done really good in some brawls and probably had yeah probably yeah <laughs> now. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Father Marin. Uh, it's hard to believe. Uh, he was made to look like he was 70 years old at the time. Uh, yeah. Max, Max von Sydow. He was in his early 40s. And the makeup is just perfect because he it looks is. like he's in his 70s. I never questioned for a second. I never no. thought that he was a younger man. And now he's What's in funny his 70s. funny is old man makeup nowadays should be even better. But, like, whenever you see someone made up as an old old person like in Prometheus and stuff you're just like hey what's up with this you know it's well, like it's subtle. what's up with this guy I never even thought about that that Max von Sydow was that young I didn't know that they had to make him up to do that it was yeah it was I just figured he was convincing. born 70 and he stayed 70 his whole life <laughs> I, you know I yeah. think of those old actors like that the ones that like you know they get that like that that perfect patina at a certain age at, you know, Clint Eastwood and stuff. So I always think of them as like coming out of the egg at like fifty-three years old. You know, yeah. <laughs> he he also you know, it's funny because he's listed very high in the credits. His part is relatively small when you think about it. Yeah, but but effective, he's especially the title in the character. beginning. <laughs> well, yes, uh, but you know, in the very beginning when they show him in Iraq and he he's he's you know picking up that stone. And then he sees the statue, and he's kind of, like, mystified by it. And the statue is of the demon that ultimately possesses Reagan. So it's all connected there. Yeah. But it's just, oh, you know, it's well, just kind, I, of, kind, of, kind of bothers me even talking about it. I always yeah. kind of felt that, like, that incident where what, whatever was happening there between him and Pazuzu, um, that was sort of what instigated Reagan, so, like, he was there investigating... So he somehow loosed Pazuzu, and Pazuzu possessed Reagan to to lure him into into fighting him. You know, so so he... So in some way, I always... The, you know, the way I... From when I first saw it, I always thought that Max von Sydow was a little... I always figured, you know, in movie logic, from when I first saw it, I always figured that's why he died. Because he's the one... You know that was sort of his penance for, for uh, you know he had to save Reagan, but at the same time he had to he didn't wasn't going to get away with it, you know with his life or, or he was or he actually didn't save her. <laughs> no, but that 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 was his his penance for wreaking havoc on on this poor kid, who was who's just a random kid who's just I think the only uh, the only thing that that. That nailed her was the the old Ouija board. We had a Ouija board in our house. You want to hear freaked out? We had a Ouija board in our house, and one day we opened it up, and it was full of carpenter ants. And my mom like <laughs> went out and threw it in the burning barrel. Oof. 
Yeah, that's kind of freaky. So, and just to, I guess the, the one piece of casting we should uh, talk about a little, little bit is uh, Linda Blair. Now, I, I, yeah, to some extent, I feel bad because I think this role may have ruined her life. She's been <laughs> yes. troubled ever since this movie. Yeah, uh, but she you was know, for I mean, a long time. They, they were trying to get her. I imagine, you know, that she was that her parents were trying were either through her or like stage parent like would have just kept trying to get her in movies and she would have still ended up in, in prison bimbo movies eventually anyway, you know? Mm. She would yeah. have just been in a different movie, but... I mean, and the thing about Linda Blair was she wasn't, like, a great actress. She was an appealing actress once she got going, but she, she did such a, a game job of pulling off and and she looked so baby-faced and innocent and you know i mean a, a lot of it is a lot of that performance is also mercedes mccambridge <laughs> yes she yeah. does the voice so yeah and that's a, that's a, a lot of it so linda blair was saying you know she wasn't saying you know the 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 horrifying lines that pazuzu was saying she was you know saying well, she was but mother, then they, well, but she then they was, dubbed them over well, yeah, but I don't. I, I I seem to remember that they like fed her. You know, she was saying stuff like, you know, your 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 mother drinks coke in hell. Oh was, yeah, it was something like that, and they would just dub dub Mercedes McCambridge over with the the real stuff. <laughs> I do think there is either in a documentary or even footage on YouTube where it has the lines as delivered by Linda. Blair. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh, that would be now, fun! Don't don't watch will, it. Don't ruin it for yourself. What? No, yeah, that's that's why I like when I when I rewatch this. I always watch the original version. I I've never seen the cut back. You know the 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 one the back walk in one. I've seen it's the not, scenes. I've watched the clips of them, and it's when not, I watched yeah, them, I was like, I I don't buy that they cut that scene out, that back walk in scene out of there because it was too frightening at the time. And no, they not had with to the take other things out. they did in it. I think that's just the the tale that's that spun around it and was a good story too. To when they cut it back in, but I I thought it was too overt and like took away from the scariness. But it's it's scary, you know. It's a scary scene in the context of like if you're you're talking the ring or something or people who like find you know the the. The per, the face coming up to the screen really fast and going Rah! scary <laughs> and and the you know crab walking is a big thing in modern horror so maybe that's why it was touted as being but I didn't find I found it took me out of it so I was like yeah I'm not gonna watch that version I'd rather watch it and it's yeah ser completely Be serious speaking state. of well, I don't. I don't think it takes away from the movie at all. To be honest with you, having watched the extended version, uh -huh. uh, but I also don't think it adds anything. Right, it's, right. It's yeah, it's no more or it. less scary because of that. So it was probably. I I can't even go as far as to say it was a good cut because you know it was a good cut in that it didn't hurt the movie to take it out. But I still think it was kind of cool, and I think if it had been in there, you would have heard people talking. Oh yeah, and that scene when she's walking down the stairs. Wish crap. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it would have there would have been a little buzz over it, so I don't know that it was necessarily a good thing to take it out, but it didn't hurt the movie. Yeah, you, you definitely don't miss it if you've watched it, and then you go back to watching the theatrical. But speaking of faces on the screen, the uh, 
the flashes of Captain Howdy, um, which I think of as the face of death. That is that's that, that's what it is in my mind. I if I anytime that pops up on like one of those screamy videos or if I watch the movie, that's the image that makes it impossible for me to fall asleep. That the way that the makeup is done and the eyes on that thing, that is like if I ever walked into a dark alley and saw that, I would, you know, be completely frozen. Like I what can't What was the name of the pig in Amityville Horror? Oh, I don't remember. I don't was remember. That, was that Pig Captain? How- I think that pig might have been Captain Howdy too. Uh, Not I know Captain it's Howdy twist- too, but Captain How- Howdy also. Well, I know it's a Twisted <laughs> Sister song as well. So, but I, I, uh, I would as I was doing some reading up on this before we uh, got on, uh, there was apparently some comments about you know in the reviews of this movie where they talked about that as being like subliminal images, and William Friedkin was kind of insulted by it. Subliminal said, means you wouldn't see it. Exactly, that was his comment. If it was subliminal, you wouldn't be able to talk about it because you wouldn't have, you would have never seen it. It was overt. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it can't be overt and sub, subliminal at the same time. Exactly. There's some. There's some. He's got some single frames in there, though. He's got some single red frames, and uh, doesn't he have words too? Didn't he have like De- death and a death's head and. And other shots of Captain Howdy, and like I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some single frames in there, but nobody's ever been able to prove either way that that you, you, your brain actually catches that and registers it. No, right. it's it's a theory. Yeah, as yeah, far yeah. as I've everything I've ever read about subliminal seduction, it's a theory. Subliminal it's not seduction. proven. Um, just to to go back to because we we kind of opened with it and i just want to talk about it a little bit is the scenes with damien's mother whether it's in the movie itself or whether it's uh or whether it's you know uh, present day or whether it's after she's passed away and it's in dream sequences and such i found those to be uncommonly effective for a side plot that like i said that that really stayed with me the the thing of, of the mother talking to him and uh, you know the, the the demon doing the mother's voice it, yeah. it really did, uh, you know, I found it to be very, very effective. And I'm curious if, if I'm the only one. Or well, yeah, guys... the demon was mocking him with all the, like, I mean, the, the, the palpable, the in here with this the palpable guilt that he felt and, you know, sadness uh, with this whole situation with his mother and the just, like, dogged determination to just, like, you know, be the the good son and 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 muscle through it and stuff and even the scene with the got a quarter for an old altar boy father, you know, <laughs> it's just a little little poke at his guilt. You know, it was. It, it's just a. It's, it's yeah. It's just a. It's just like, winding winding up that that Catholic guilt. You know, and but doing it and not like, uh, like oh, you know, Catholic people feel guilty. It really it shows you just sort of the 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 life he's living, and on top of it, he's having his having kind of a crisis of faith uh, on top of it. So he's just miserable, you know, and and then going into a, a, a horrible situation, which of course is going to be the thing that's going to give him his faith back, of course, for for a short time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, enough in, time, you know. Apparently, in filming this, uh, Freakin uh, took some liberties. 
Uh, yeah, he was a jerk. <laughs> yeah. He uh, the one the one story that that comes to mind is that uh, the the pea soup <laughs> uh, when when it uh, when she projectile vomits into uh, Damien's face in in the rehearsals it always hit him in the chest and that's what it was supposed to do and then Friedkin had it changed <laughs> without telling uh, Miller so that's why he looks totally disgusted. Like it was to get that look on his face. The oldest hey, trick in the book, they, they gotta, did it in Alien. Alien, yeah. yeah. Gotta do yeah. what you gotta do. And I also, and then, I uh, heard, I heard like, he used to bring like a, 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 one of the like, you know, prop pistols in and just blast it off every once in a while to keep people on their, you know, yeah, keep people's adrenaline flowing. Yeah, yeah or to, which to is get dangerous. the shocked look out of them, to get them to jump. Yeah. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn got her, her tailbone broken too when she gets pulled up against the the wall there. Oh, smacked them against the wall. Oh yeah, they pulled yeah, the, the, the rig was set too, as well. too hard. Oh, they had it all wired up. Hard. Yeah, and that and and that's the scene they used in the movie, which yep. angered her. <laughs> hey she was man, really in pain. Use it. I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand that. I would, you know, as an actor, I'd be pissed and I would be like. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd go up and be like, hey, I want a little, you know, maybe maybe uh, a car in my driveway would be uh, <laughs> nice for this. But, you know, I don't know. I, it, it, if you're an actor, if you're an actor, whatever, you know, it's like, okay, that hurt. But, you know, hey, you got it on film. Why not, you know? It's going to look great. Right, ask George Miller after, you know, Road Warrior. <laughs> well, that's like with the stuntmen. It's like if somebody dies during a stunt, they're like, you know, you leave it in the movie. Like, that's why they're here. You know? I, I think after a while, most stuntmen probably like write that in their will and stuff. If I die, make sure you leave it. <laughs> Tell everybody that I would have wanted it that way. Like, that's part of the stuntman's code. Like, you yeah. get injured or die during a stunt. Like, that's <laughs> you keep it in the movie. I, I don't I cannot see how there'd be a, a stuntman in the world who would enter into that job without having that you know without knowing that first anyway so be, and being part of the appeal of it too in some yeah. way. Just uh, but not Ellen record, Bernstein. I, I, lo I looked up stunt, uh, stunt woman. Yeah. I, I looked up for the record uh, in that year best supporting actor. The nominees were Randy Quaid for the last detail. Oh, Jason Miller for the Exorcist. Jack Guilford for Save the Tiger, Vincent Gardenia for Bang the Drum Slowly, and the winner, which I can't argue with, John Houseman for The Paper Chase. A shroud, Mr. Hart. Shroud. That was, that, I mean, that was also an iconic performance, so I can't yes. really argue. Well, of course, know, if, I mean, if, Miller had won, if Miller had won, I wouldn't question that either. The Academy no. does not want to give genre movies... Oscars, and if it's a really good genre movie, they'll nominate it. Only recently have has it happened, and it's usually still grudging makeup and you know, and special effects awards. Yeah. And stuff Return of like the King that. got Best Picture, didn't it? Lin Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn were both nominated as well. Uh, Will William Blatty won for Best Screenplay, and uh, the the movie was nominated for Best Picture as well. The Sting one I, again, I can't argue with that. And William Friedkin was nominated as director. Well, the the last detail is an, is one of those movies that's on my my list of shame of movies that I've always wanted to see, and have never seen. I've heard that movie is amazing. 
I, that's one I have to admit too. I've never seen it, but I've, I, I even remember when it was in the movies, hearing about it. So it's probably one I need to to sit down and watch sooner or later. What's What's next on our list for this? The uh, The Wikipedia page has the box office for it, and then it has it converted to two thousand seventeen dollars based on inflation. Mm. Would either of you care to to wager a guess? As to what right. the 2017 <clears throat> inflation take would be on the overall box office. Okay, so I'll see. I was going to say 250 million. Uh, I'll go a little lower. That's with I'll... the inflation factored in. I'm, uh, yeah, I'll, I'm with the inflation factored in. Yeah, I'll, I'll go a little lower. I'll say, I'll say 200 million. Okay, now this is according to Wikipedia, so you have to take it for what it's worth. The budget, legitimately, not not changed for inflation, was 12 million dollars. Which okay. is pretty the expensive office, for then. Yes, yeah, that was that was a fairly high budget. Uh, the box office, which I assume is worldwide, was four hundred and forty-one point three million dollars. Is that including all the re-releases? Well, it just says box office. It probably is. Okay. I would guess the box office, as factored in for two thousand seventeen inflation, was one point eight six two billion dollars. Okay. Holy. okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, I guess I win under prices right rules, but one dollar. <laughs> if we're on the prices right, you're coming in to, to bet on the showcase. Now go play Plinko. All right. <laughs> but that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't mention uh, cons- also in consideration to play Father Merrin was uh, Marlon Brando. Oh my god. No, I mean it would have been great, but no, it's it's. It's like I remember when um, Land of the Dead came out, and I was like, heard that Dennis Hopper was in it, and I'm like, oh no! Like John Leguizamo, he's a known actor, but he can sort of disappear into a role. But I was like, how are you gonna, you know that, you know, horror movies are great when you don't recognize or at least don't have like somebody that just glaringly stands out, unless it's like Bruce Campbell or something, you know that that's their thing, but. You 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 want people that you think of as just like some guy, you know, and and Marlon Brando and and Marlon Brando would have been like, you know, can we have a monkey in the scene? And yeah, <laughs> you know, I, think I really think I need a monkey. Um, <laughs> see, the thing is, I think Marlon Brando would have done it tremendously. I think he would have been great in the point, but oh yeah, he would have. I, he would I also have, like, think joined Mike, the Catholic Mike, Church and worked his way up to method learn. <laughs> Is wrong. I think Max von Sydow was well, perfect. Well, Arthur Miller was in was, seminary. So. Jason Miller, uh, sorry, not Arthur Miller. <laughs> but but with as as good as Max von Sydow was, I wouldn't want to change this movie. No, but I'd be curious to see what it would be like with Marlon Brando. It would definitely have a different feel somehow. I, I you know I think the role of Father Merrin would have felt more more sent more. more as part of the centerpieces of the movie that it did. He feels very supporting actor-like in yes. this movie. Uh, I think he would have seemed like one of the more central characters. Think about his role in Superman the movie. I mean, he's on screen for, what, five minutes? Yeah, but then his and presence is always And yet he seems like felt. a pivotal character. His, his presence is very strongly felt throughout the movie. And I think the same would probably hold true here. Even though the part would be smaller, he takes the screen... You know, to yeah. himself. And, and also, when Marlon Brando's in a movie, everybody talks about that movie. I mean, when Superman was coming out, they're just like, and it's Superman with Marlon Brando, you know? 
it was it, he it, it it sort of overshadows everything and that's bad for you know suspension of disbelief walking into the theater you know the le- the yeah. less the less you know and the less you recognize the better off you are with a horror movie the less you're thinking about like ooh Marlon Brando's put on some weight or <laughs> you know well, I wonder if it was crazy on the set you know there's so many there's so many things that could send you even even through a you know stupendous perform even even a stupendous performance by Marlon Brando could overshadow everything else and like I I've always felt that this was Karis's story in the movie as far as the the priests go and that mm-hmm. that Marin was just Marin was just he was a character but he was kind of a plot device he wasn't you know I I never felt invested in him I didn't you know I was worried about what was going to happen to to Karis you know yeah, well, you don't you don't feel it at all because he doesn't really have a character arc in the movie. No, he doesn't really he doesn't really have any moments where you understand what he's like inside. However, he is critical to the movie because he's the one who kind of sets Pazuzu off, and you know, at least to, to some extent, he's who Pazuzu's after. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but then go ahead. No, that's I mean that's it. But and and that's the thing if. It's he, he is the prime motivator in in some ways, but it's the he's the prime motivator so that Damien can have his story arc. Even though he's the su- supporting character, it's about. Well, there's like the cosmic battle going on between Marin and Pazuzu, and then there's the down to, the more down to earth, you know characters of the mother the daughter and the 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 local priest you know yeah. the the more down-to-earth priest and you know that priest is there to get the daughter back you know that's where he's focused in the mother and the daughter and and Marin is on you know Marin with, with Pazuzu it's personal this time it's personal yeah. this well, time. one of the things about this movie is for for a horror movie there's an uncommonly large number of storylines that are going on at the same time. You have yeah. Father Marin's battle with Pazuzu. You have Damien's story arc, which is complex, uh, where he's you know he's going through uh, a, a crisis of conscience because of you know what went on with his mother. He's also trying to uh, you know deal with. Not only his guilt from that, but trying to help this young girl. Uh, the one thing, you know, it, it kind of escaped me when I watched it that I, I picked up from the uh, synopsis is at the end of the movie when he sacrifices himself. He sacrifices himself by taking the demon inside of him and then he's fighting with the demon and he throws himself out the window. And that's all I saw as I watched this movie until I read in here where it says, you know, he sacrifices himself because the demon's about to make him hurt. Oh, yeah. Bla- uh, the Blair, uh, Linda Blair. And uh, when I watched it, you do see that. And I, for some reason, that escaped me. Oh, so he's, yeah. the level of self-sacrifice is, is huge. Yeah, he's, he's, about to, he's about to throttle her because he's already, he's, already, he's already 
giving her the business, trying to. But he he gave her the business because he was giving Pazuzu the business. Yes, this is after after the demon comes into him. Exactly. So you would think you could see he's he's got the look, you know, he's got the makeup on his face that he's that he's possessed, and he starts looking down at her like he's going to do something. Yeah. Then the his face turns back to its normal appearance, and that's when he throws himself out the window because yeah. he fight he fought off what the demon was trying to get him to do. Which I just think is is terrific, and like I said, the subtlety of that escaped me until I read it, and then I saw it, and it was like, oh yeah, of course. How how did I miss that? But in in addition to those storylines, you have the mother and daughter storyline, you have the Catholic Church storyline with them trying to, or the medical community, both of them trying to deny that this is a reality. You have uh, what's in Lee J. Cobb, who's a terrific actor on his own, investigating this thing, who's just kind of a side plot through the whole thing. Yeah. And, and and has some great lines. You know, you'd think they almost had a, a young Quentin Tarantino come in and write his his uh, his dialogue for him. Yeah, and I mean that's not even to go into the other ancillary stuff. Just the you know the um, the desecration in the church and the yeah. fact that the astronaut does die up there. <laughs> you know, it's like or even the the German manservant and his fight with the uh, director who's calling him a Nazi. Uh, yeah, that, somebody, that somebody reminds touches. me of the character that was Rosemary's confidant and friend, and Rosemary's baby crossed with Arthur. He reminds me of what's his name, John Hurt. Yes, <laughs> he's like if John Hurt played Arthur in. To me, it's it's like you combine yeah. John Hurt and Burgess Meredith. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, so you know, I watched this again to uh, to for us to talk about it, and I hope all the listeners appreciate that I'm going to be stuck having nightmares again. That's why. That's <laughs> why I only watched a few scenes because I wasn't going to be able to watch it during the daytime. <laughs> I watched. I started to watch it during the day, but I wasn't able to get through it because of things interfering. So then last night I sat down and I watched it right before I went to sleep. Yeah, hell not no. always a, not no, always a no good way idea. Hell. This is this this and and uh, Alien and uh, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness are like the only three things where if, if it's if it's too late and it's too dark and I'm too alone, there's not a shot in hell that I'm watching it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what one thing I would like to mention is with The Exorcist, the sound design on this, you wouldn't even have to watch it if you just had it playing. The sound design in this is so. And there's little things like there's the sound of like when he's opening up the the jars of holy water and you can hear, you know, it's just you can hear the detail of the 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 sound. But all the while, there's always that raspy wheezing. But it also but it almost sounds like two or three people wheezing a little off of each other. And it's just constantly creepy there's always a uh uh and sometimes it's dead silent and uh you know which is something movies often just don't like to do no. and and it works the, the, the if if the sound design was not as good or or not good that good at all it could have ruined this whole movie and it, instead it it almost you know doubled the the Groove factor of it. Well, you, when you talk about that, like wheezing sound and everything, that combined so well 
with the appearance of the room to be you know bitterly freezing cold yeah which 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 in fact it was he had basically freezer units put into the room so that it would be you know yeah you couldn't literally couldn't as cold cg as well. in that that mist no. in those days it looks great because <laughs> it's real <laughs> yeah no the people i mean when they when they walk in their body language you know i mean gets cold you know they don't even uh, i mean the actors are probably like this is great i don't even have to pretend it's cold yeah. you know i don't even have to worry about what my posture is here's a question for you guys have you guys ever watched uh, exorcist 2 the heretic I tried <laughs> i've watched bits and pieces of it and that, that was actually one of the next things i wanted to talk to you about was uh, if uh you know the, just the plethora of sequels and reboots and things that this movie has had uh, and okay. what you may or may not have seen at this point. I've seen them all other than most of Exorcist 2 because it is I love John Borman. I love yeah. John Borman. I do too. So but it's... I was introduced to Exorcist 2 as well A, it w- reading about it in the Golden Turkey Awards book <laughs> and hearing how horrible it was. And then having somebody who also introduced me to Francis Ford Coppola movies and stuff like that go, you really need to watch The Exorcist 2. It's a very misunderstood movie. It's brilliant. It's You can't think of it as The Exorcist. You have to think of it as its own, its own thing, but it's actually brilliant. And then I watched it, and I'm like, I, you know, I really don't know what the hell you're talking about. I mean, there were points <laughs> in it that, I mean... It's ridiculous in some points, and there's interesting things about it, but... It's a gorgeous-looking movie, but, yeah, it's... All right, let's sit here and spin this wheel while the light's on you for an hour. And try to sell that one on an... You know, sell that on an audience after the outright, you know, marvelousness of the first movie. I've heard the two cuts... At least two cuts... I think there's at least two cuts of Exorcist 3, like, not just cuts, but there's, like, one version and then one that's refilmed with a different director. Um, I wanted to see Exorcist 3 because of its, uh, because Jason Miller was in it. It's, it's, Exorcist 3. But you're you're thinking of, you're actually thinking of the fourth one, Chris, where there were the two, uh, two versions. Dominion is... There's two versions of the, yeah, one's, uh, Dominion, a prequel to The Exorcist, and I think the other cut is, um... Exorcist: The Beginning. I can't remember the names off the top but of they, my head. But they, they were. Two. I heard one of those is really good. They're bo- they're actually both pretty good. They're, they, one is the the one that was released, from what I understand, is is a little bit more commercial, and the first the other one is a little bit more artsy. They're, but they're both they're both worth watching actually. Um, and they they both they they do, it does tell a good story. Um, in both versions, but yeah, one is a little more roller coastery. The other one is a little more like. When you think of the Exorcist, mm-hmm. and it is, uh, and it is all about Father Marin's first encounter with Pazuzu when he's uh, a much younger priest. Uh, uh, and, have you? Uh, I'm sorry. Keep going, Chris. Uh, yeah, I've seen. I've seen them all. I got the whole collection. Um, outside of the Exorcist, which is an all-time classic, uh, I have only seen the theatrical cut of Exorcist Three, um, and I would highly recommend if you have not seen it to see it. It is um, more of a psychological thriller than a full-blown... It it definitely has its um, metaphysical elements. Supernatural. It definitely has that. Um, But it is wildly engrossing. um, And it will haunt you. 
there is there is imagery in that that is as haunting as the stuff in um, in the original Exorcist. Uh, let me just put it this way: um, so Kinderman uh, is played by George C. Scott in it, um, and oh, he's investigating. Oh yeah, I'm down for George C. Scott at almost any time, anyway. So, and he's basically there's been a rash of murders, and he's investigating that rash of murders. And um, I don't want to give too much away because it, it is worth watching. But at some point, he is given a vision of hell, um, and it is terrifying. It is it is not what you would think of. Um, <laughs> and there is one of the best. So it's not like the end of the gates of, gates of hell, or what, uh, what? What was that one Argento movie we watched? Oh yeah, no, it's not like it's not like that. Yeah, mm, you know what? No, it's not like that. It is. Um, it's not as desolate as that. It's. Um, but it is. It is deeply disturbing. Um, yeah, the Beyond. Right? Was that the Beyond? Beyond. Yes. Yeah. But it has that. You'll have that same gut punch of, oh god, if that if that is real and that's what it's like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> so, yeah, it's well. That's uh, what you want in an ex in an Exorcist movie. Yeah. So, <laughs> Exorcist three is definitely worth watching. It's got one of the best. It's got one of the best earned jump scares I've ever seen, um, because it's not cheap, um, and it's not even a loud jump scare. It's a quiet jump scare. Um, it has George C. Scott at his swarthy and uh, manic best. It has um, uh, uh, God, I can't think of his name. Brad uh, Brad Dorf in it as a very mm-hmm. pivotal character. It does also have Jason Miller in it. Uh, the director's cut or producer's cut, I can't remember. That just finally got released. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, has more of Jason Miller in it. So. Um, I do need to track that down because I'm dying to see that. Um, and I'm just I'm curious, and you know, spoilers for anybody who's listening. Uh, how did they get around the fact that Father Damien died at the end of this? You'll have to you'll have to watch. They do they do explain it though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, have you watched the TV show at all? I have not. Um, I just there's so much on my TV viewing schedule. I, I didn't even know it, it existed till I was did a little reading on on. For for this episode, I didn't even know they made a TV show about it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I I, th- I think with with what we got with the Exorcist and with um, Exorcist Three, which actually isn't even the original title of that story. It's Legion is the name right. of the story, which, which is based um, on it, the actual sequel that Friedkin wrote. Yeah, I believe the the direct actually Friday, I think the, the 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 second cut that came out is Friedkin's preferred cut. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, don't think of it as in, in the same way, but uh, yeah, you should watch that one because it's a really, really good story. Okay. No, uh, the, uh, any TV other points show, that you I guys want to make about the, uh, the main movie before we get on to, uh, our rating? Uh, as, as a, as a Catholic and as still a practicing Catholic, um, I don't know if people are subject to demonic possession, um, but you know if there is that like one percent chance, or if you know, if it is even remotely a possibility, then it is the most terrifying thing I could possibly think of, um, because it is something that is an existential pressure put upon you by something that you have zero control over. 
uh, you know, and that's what's terrifying about it. it, it if it's going to happen, I think worse, worse than being possessed would be having someone you know and love being possessed. Would would almost be worse. Yes, well, that you, yeah, that's what I mean. Um, yeah, it's um, it's terrifying. And uh, if you're not of a religious persuasion, you can still watch this movie as, uh, you know, you can still, if you're going to suspend your disbelief anyway and watch a horror movie, um, this you know, movie persuaded a lot of non-religion li- religious people at least for a couple hours. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> which is that's, you know, uh, that, that, that's 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 a better record than a lot of churches can do. You know, yeah. so <laughs> yeah. But this that's, is one of those ones. That's a good way that, to do it too. Scare the holy hell out of somebody. You know. Yeah, holy hell! If you haven't gotten around to watching this one by now, it, it, and if you're one of those people that can't take super intense stuff like that, I totally get it. It's still hard for me to watch it because of the the subject matter. Yeah, you um, watch it over and over. Yeah, but if it's <laughs> if you're into horror and you haven't seen The Exorcist yet, don't read anything about it. Forget anything you've ever heard about it. Just sit down and watch the movie. Uh, yeah, just just do it. Which leads us to the pivotal question, and we'll start off with Hero. Is this Jaws? Absolutely. Let me give the Jaws scale. Oh, Hold sorry. <laughs> Got to give the Jaws scale for every, every time. Uh, so if you're ranking it as Jaws, you're saying it's an all-time classic. Great movie, very little, if anything, wrong with it at all. Jaws 2, solid movie, worthy of, of repeated viewings, but just not quite in that all-time classic level. Jaws 3, watchable, but nothing special or memorable. Jaws four, a bad movie. Hero. Oh, it's absolutely. Is it Jaws? It's absolutely Jaws. Absolutely, there, there's no argument there. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's forty it's forty four years old and and we're and we're still, you and I, Paul, are still talking about it and still afraid to to, to watch it at night before we go to bed. So high praise. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. No, no, there isn't. <laughs> I could be. I could sleep with the light on. I need my binky. Chris Honeywell. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's a resounding Jaws, and it's it's also like shares something with Jaws where, outside of a few little details of life, but at the same time, it doesn't suffer from not taking place at its time. They're they're like they're both ageless. You know, you don't you, you don't watch. At least I don't see either of them as being like dated at all. So it's just like, yeah, it's a it's a timeless classic, and it's up there in the you know, in the ranks of the movies that you just consider perfect movies. You know, yeah. I really can't. Yeah. I really can't think of a flaw in this movie. I can't think of anything that I was like, yeah, if I if I was a director, I would have t- cut, clipped that out, or you know, or I would have done this different, or this was there's just nothing it, it runs like a perfect machine yes well anybody who's listening you would if you if you'd listen back you'd realize that we never said anything that we thought could have been done better <laughs> in this movie yeah, no. so uh i'm i'm gonna make it unanimous this is absolutely a, a jaws level movie this is one of certainly one of the greatest horror movies of all time it is just a great movie yeah uh you know i i would i would have to put it in that horror classification though because i do know various people who just don't have a stomach for horror they, they just you know can't handle it 
and I would say this movie is not for them. It's it, <laughs> they it, should not. Watch I mean, this. if it's not horror, what is it? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And and there's there's no doubt if you, if you go to if you go to the subgenre of horror movies with a religious overtone, which would include movies like The Omen. Um, I mean, there's so many others. The Prophecy. There's different things that that there are. I would say this is this has to be the greatest of them all. This is this is the king of religious horror yeah. movies. Yeah, Absolutely. like I mean, the Damien da- the Damien movies are great, but speaking of not aging well, you know they don't they don't, they don't age quite as well. Seeing as how like you know the Antichrist should have taken o- took it over forty years ago or whatever, but well he it, does in the third one. Yeah, right, right. That's what I'd say. But what was that like, nineteen eighty-two or something like that? Nineteen eighty or something around there. You it's when, know? Sa- when Sam Neill takes yeah. over the world. Yeah, and uh, but but, uh, but I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, you just can't. I mean, most of most other religious horror movies have just that strong dose of cheat. You know, race with the devil, the devil's reign. You know, all you know, religion. They're, and they're usually like religious cult movies you know and but this is just taking place in in the context of the of the catholic church in normal everyday life you know it's 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 it takes itself seriously and that's a rarity with religious horror movies because it's a hard it's especially back in 1972 you know, you're 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 walking on eggshells with that. So you make it a cheesy cult, or you know, or something like that. So you don't seriously get get a certain amount of picketing's good. <laughs> a certain amount of gets bad. So, and uh, this this walks that line perfectly. Well, I would say of of the movies that we talked about, and this is off the top of my head, I would have to do a little further digging just to make sure, but I would say the closest for me, as far as religious horror movies, would be The Omen. The original Omen. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that was a pretty terrifying movie in its own right, but it's not quite at the level that this No, and, and I love Richard Donner to pieces, and, but that movie has not held up the same way. That one, to me, I can watch now, and, and I'll get the giggles over certain parts of it. Um... It, but uh, I don't have that reaction when I rewatch The Exorcist. No, the ex- The Exorcist plays out like a s- more, you know, less like it's a movie. But you know, the, it the could o- be a the, stage. The Omen's play. like, here comes a shock kill. <laughs> yeah, here comes and one the- of the kills. So it's 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 got more of that ride aspect a, yeah, to it. It's a pop culture movie. thing going. Whereas, whereas this one. You know, this one is. Although I remember people used the the omen was giving people existential dread, but just not like The Exorcist. Okay. I didn't. Now before, not even uh, seeing it, well, I was getting terrified over it. You know, with my sister <laughs> wheezing. You know, <laughs> that's the power. Before we uh, sign off, I have I have a rare uh, moment here, and I'd like you guys to just indulge me for a couple of minutes sure. because I have a piece of email which I usually don't get email, and I'm just very happy to get a piece. And anybody who is interested in commenting on movies, everybody, everybody's reviewed, always happy to get a piece. Oh yeah, exactly. Anybody who's interested in commenting on any movies that we've covered, or if there's any movies that you'd like us to cover, any movies that uh, you have any commentary at all on, please feel free to. Uh, to email me at jawspodcast at gmail.com. 
this is from Rafe York. And as we record this, uh, the Is It Yours episode about Almost Famous just went up, and that's what Rafe is commenting on. And he states, Hi, Paul. I'm a fan of Almost Famous, so listen to the latest Is It Yours with a little more interest than usual. I enjoyed your discussion of the film, but I want to add my thoughts. Shocking, I know, since I'm taking the time to type an email. <laughs> Almost Famous is about the illusion of coolness. Throughout the movie, characters reference coolness as if it is an achievable status. Anita promises William, someday you'll be cool. Lester Bang says, I've met you. You're not cool. However, and more importantly, after reading William's article, Jeff Beebe asks, Is it that hard to make us look cool? As a burgeoning rock star, Beebe is close to the pinnacle of coolness in the early 70s. Yet by asking the question, he reveals that his coolness is an act, or more appropriately, a perception held by others. Throughout the film, cool people are exposed to be normal, often through conversation with William's mother. Elaine freaks them out because she sees through the facade of coolness. With the hotel clerk, is a hotel clerk cool? I'd say one who works at the hotel where rock stars stay probably has a few envious friends. And Sapphire, Elaine breaks through effortlessly as they are both cool by association. Russell takes a little longer, but even the coolest character in the movie is reduced to yes ma'am by the end of his phone conversation with the formidable Dr. Miller. How can coolness be anything but an act if it can so easily be torn asunder? Russell is also exposed as being less cool than he seems following the Golden God party. Russell's search for something real leads him to the high, high school party, and he is certainly the coolest person at the party, but it is a party that should be beneath his status. Rock stars don't hang out with their fans, because fans lead boring lives, and no one aspires to copy. Jeff Beebe describes his job as lead singer as, I look for, for the one guy who isn't getting off, and I make him get off. His job is to make every fan feel like part of the show to feel cool. As Russell sits on the tour bus wrapped in a blanket or towel recovering from the night before, he has the appearance of a scolded child. He knows that his actions the night before, reducing himself to normalcy, pulled away the curtain of coolness and revealed the person behind the image. As such, he's ostracized to the front of the bus. Also, during the turbulence scene, as discussed on the podcast, all the members of the entourage make their final confessions. As they face imminent death, they feel vulnerable and open, thus they share their deepest secrets. The scene of confessions exemplifies Lester Bang's words, The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Cool is mysterious, so this scene of sharing, while cathartic for the band, is devastating for their cool image. If the incident were kept between the group, this wouldn't be an issue, but William not only includes it in his article, he leads with it. He reveals the realness of their rock and roll fantasy lives, their cool lives. One final point. Sorry, this has gotten out of hand. Both of you, both you and Scott questioned the fortunate coincidence of William bumping into his sister in the airport. I agree this seems at first to be unlikely, but Crow does set it up early in the, earlier in the film, before she leaves her mother's house to move to San Francisco and become a stewardess. Rolling Stone was headquartered in San Francisco. While it may be unlikely that William and Anita would be at the same gate at the same time, is it anything more unlikely than Harry bumping into his ex-wife and when Harry met Sally? Look, it was bound to happen at some point. In a city of 8 million people, you're bound to bump into your ex-wife. <laughs> Thank you for the time, Rafe York. So, Rafe, thank you for the email. Uh, just my commentary back on that is, I've always looked at cool as kind of a perception of others. 
if you're worried about being cool or if you're trying to be cool, it means you're not cool. <laughs> cool. Cool is all a matter of other people perceiving you as cool, not you being cool. That's that's my own take on it. Uh, and, yeah, I still think it was too much of a coincidence for him to run into his sister at the airport. And I think it's more of a coincidence than Harry running into his ex-wife because that was just by chance in a bookstore where they might both have interest and they probably lived in the same neighborhood as opposed to running into your sister in an airport when you are at the lowest of lows and it just happens to be the perfect time to run into her. just seemed like too much of a coincidence for me. It didn't ruin the movie in any shape or form, but still didn't ring true for me. Well, his his commentary on, on this movie being about coolness, totally... Um, I love Cameron Crowe movies, and uh, that almost I, I really like Almost fav- Famous. It's, I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Cameron Crowe movie, but it's a really good movie. But I've always thought it would make a super... It, he didn't direct Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but he wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And he sort of wrote it through Rolling Stone, actually. It was like an assignment he wrote, you know, the, it was an article he wrote called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and it got developed into the movie, and he wrote the script. And that's, that movie, and they're, they're like two great commentaries on being cool. That's Fast Times at Ridgemont High is all about, um, um, what is, is it, Jennifer Jason Lee? Mm-hmm. About Je- you know Jennifer Jason Lee is the is is the you know, and and the 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 guy she ends up you know hooking up with they they're the ones who are you know they're they're working through every different kind of high school coolness trying to figure out their coolness and she's even working through like after high school predator coolness <laughs> and stuff like that but. Like, I think those movies go so well together because the early one is, like, sort of written by the main character of of Almost Famous. And there are two meditations on, on coolness and, per, you know, perception of people. And they're both great movies. They're both wildly entertaining movies on top of all that. Yeah. I would agree with you on all of that. But that's it for this week's episode. So, uh... Join us in two weeks when we'll review some other movie. <laughs> Me and somebody. Hmm. <laughs> somebody else. Say goodbye, guys. Goodbye, Bye, guys. guys. <laughs>